The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I am Bill Amadeo from McManus Amadeo and Grable and & Associates and the Shiawassee Six. It's funny, I had somebody contact me earlier. Um, I was texting somebody about a case. And they were like, what are you doing? It's Memorial Day. You know, and I don't, I don't quite get that, guys. I think everybody should enjoy their life. I really do. But I really think we're in a society right now where people look for excuses not to work. It's Friday. It's the weekend. It's a holiday. I don't know. My Uncle Sam Ioli, may he rest in peace, an amazing role model to me. He always taught me, you go in the office early on the holidays, and you'll be a step ahead of the competition. And I think most importantly in this profession, our clients are facing the most dire of circumstances. Don't we owe it to them to push the envelope? I mean, I don't know. I don't like excuses not to work. And today's topic is relatively important because these are topics that are completely overlooked. And it's frustrating. Scott Grable, good to see you again. Enjoyed watching Shallow Hell with you. That was good last night. Um, Less about Inco Hate Crimes. And speaking of Scott Grable, there'll be an article coming up where the writer actually quote Scott and myself soon enough and there'll be a blog attached to this I guess but when you look at an incohate crime you look at a crime that's punished towards the commission of committing a crime so let me explain what that means in English let's talk about bar exam and um, law school aspects versus the real world incohate it often gets accomplished with a Latin term. And when you're on the Michigan bar exam, Latin terms are always incorrect on the MBE multiple choice portion. Never pick a Latin term as an answer, and they often seduce students into picking them. But in the essays, those terms really have a lot of weight. And in law school, the concept of incohate crimes, because they're technically incomplete crimes, if you would, they get overlooked too. Like in your crim law course, maybe week nine or week ten, depending upon who your professor is, you don't see a ton of them on the exam, but then it comes back to bite you on the bar exam. In the real world, quite often at public defender's office, the guys and girls that are newer get these crimes, and that's kind of dangerous because we're seduced to this feeling that these are not major crimes. They actually are. The three big incohate crimes, and there's more than these three. Let's talk about them. Solicitation, attempt, and conspiracy. And they're kind of wicked, the way they could go together. Let's break down solicitation. We're going to talk about what the crime is, the elements of the crime, if you would, at least on a broad base, and then how different counties look at that crime. When we look at solicitation... We're thinking to ask, aid, entice, or encourage. And many people think solicitation to prostitution is always where this crime lives. It actually goes a lot deeper than that. There could be solicitation to murder, 
solicitation plays a huge role in the drug criminal aspect of things. But let's talk about that. If you ask somebody to commit a crime, technically, you have solicited that. We see this a lot in sting operations. Um, the ghost teams in different counties, especially in Genesee County, they'll try to set people up to come to hotels to meet young girls. And what's happening is the solicitation aspect collides with the entrapment theory. One thing about solicitation that we got to watch out for is the merger doctrine. A lot of times a criminal complaint can be completely compromised because a prosecutor will charge a defendant with solicitation and the principal crime. We say principal crime, think about this for a minute. Solicitation is how it starts and it merges into the principal or target crime depending on the verbiage you want to use. You can't be charged with both technically. Now a bar exam trick could be that you solicit into one crime and then you actually get involved in another crime. But solicitation is like the first pitch in the game. Opening tip all. Use a basketball analogy for game seven tonight. Many people think about solicitation in the prostitution realm, and I understand why they do. Guys solicit a prostitute for sexual purposes, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And if we're going to talk about prostitution for a minute, you understand a few things. This gets lost on people. In a place like Washington, they've been very clear. They're not going to charge people for prostitution. In a place like Wayne, the solicitation of prostitution actually has a 45-day mandatory minimum sentence if you don't get it down to a disorder or you get the case dismissed. So you got to watch that. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. One of the things Pete Winter taught me, and I learned a lot from Pete, but one of the things he told me that was actually extremely valuable is this concept of uniformity of law. Talk about uniformity of law. The law says this, right? The legislator put these laws into play. What's up, Amber? And what we've learned as we get seasoned in the criminal justice field is that every county puts their own spin on the law. The way solicitation plays out in Lapeer will be a lot different than the way it plays out in Ingham County. you got to know that. Your lawyer needs to know that going in. But solicitation is that first concept, if you would. Attempt is a much bigger aspect. Because attempt is a failed crime, right? And again, attempt will merge into the principal or target crime. You understand something, though. With intent, the big knock, if you would, the big concept we got to break down, whether it's the bar exam, or you're actually a practitioner, is the concept of substantial step. Did you intend to commit the crime, and did you take a substantial step towards the commission of the crime? We look at substantial step, we look at close proximity. How close did you come? And as a failed baseball player, I always go back to the concept of the check swing. You guys know what the check swing is, right? You went swinging, did you break your wrist? And you look at the first base umpire if you're a righty, or the third base umpire if you're a lefty, to see if the guy actually swung. Is it a strike? That's the way you look at attempt. You know, attempt at murder is pretty black and white. You shot at somebody you missed. 
here's my question for you. Let's say the defendant wanted to kill somebody. And they load their gun. And they get into their car. And they have a change of heart. And they drive home. Is that attempt? Let's take a pop culture analogy on it. Let's go back to Boys in the Hood. Great movie, right? If you ever watch Boys in the Hood, there's a horrible but powerful scene when Ricky gets killed. And Trey is heartbroken, right? Trey is devastated. His best friend just got shot for no reason. And this kid leaves behind his girlfriend and his child. And we find out that day he gets in the USC with football. And there is this black cloud over everything. And Doughboy and his boys want to go kill the guys that killed Ricky. Trey gets in the car. And they start driving, looking for these guys. Let's isolate Trey for a minute. Did Trey have the intent to kill for revenge for Ricky? Elements there, right? That intent, that mens rea, that's present. The question I have for you guys, and the question a prosecutor would have a defense counsel would battle over is, is Trey getting in the car with the intent and driving around looking for the killer of Ricky? Is that enough to say he's guilty of attempted murder? Did he take a substantial step? Now in the movie, Trey jumps out, right? He takes a bus and he goes home. They find the people that killed Ricky at the mall. How close was Trey getting out of the vehicle to the mall where the revenge murder occurred? Let's take Doughboy for a minute. Doughboy's driving, right? Now, arguably, he's driving the vehicle. Ricky's in the back. If Doughboy had a change of heart and he got near the mall, is the fact that he has a loaded gun, he goes near the mall, and he changes his mind. Can you withdraw from the crime of attempt? That element, substantial step, close proximity. We see prosecutors all this be way too fast and loose with the AWIM charge. Assault with intent to commit murder. It's just something we throw against the wall and it's often put out there to plead down to a felonious assault. And the attempt is a broken crime, right? What do you do there? It's called incohate that doesn't actually become the principal or target crime. You gotta watch that. And the boys the hood analogy always stuck with me. You know? If I had the complaint before me, and Trey's complaint come there, did he attempt to commit murder? Or did he leave before that substantial step was met? And in a broad term, it gets a lot deeper, right? But in a broad term, we're looking at an attempt. Was that a substantial step? Conspiracy is a whole different ballgame. Conspiracy is punishment. Preparation for the crime. Did you want to commit the crime? Did you agree to commit the crime? Or did you do an act in furtherance of the crime? It doesn't merge. This really had its high point, if you would, in the 70s and 80s in Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. These were where RICO charges came into play. This is where the Pinkerton rule came into effect. Okay, Go about conspiring, think about it. You're planning it, right? 
And what the legislation said was, there's punishment for the preparation, then there's punishment for committing the act itself. But conspiracy falls into an incohate crime because it's not actually committing the actus reus. The mens reus is the mental aspect, the actus reus is the physical aspect of things. Conspiracy doesn't merge for a huge reason. We'll go back to RICO charges against the Mafia. We'll go back to the Pinkerton rule. In essence, what RICO and the Pinkerton rule wanted to do was they wanted to put everybody into a loop. When we say a loop, let's do stereotypes of the Mafia in the 70s, okay? You got your guy who's bookmaking before FanDuel and all that good stuff. So you got your bookie. And you have your drug dealers. And you have your pimps. Then you have the guys that are loan sharking. Then you have the guys that are hiring people to commit murders. And whether you are the big player or the little bookie, in essence, you're part of this criminal enterprise. And the Pinkerton was like this big wheel. And what Pinkerton tried to do was in essence say that even the small-time player is conspiring into this criminal enterprise. So what did the prosecution want to do there? Well, they want to get the bookie and the pimp to roll on the murderers. And how did they do that? This is where Rico comes into play. If you're part of that circle, you could be charged with the principal crimes, even if you're in a low-end conspiracy. What does that mean in English? Let's break it down. Let's take the basketball game tonight. Celtics are given eight and a half points. Before the advent of FanDuel and all that stuff, you would call Bookie. Give me 500 on the Celtics minus eight and a half. The Bookie's financing came from the drug running and the murdering. So what they would say is the Bookie, who's got a wife and three kids at home, is responsible just as much for the murder as the guy that pulled the trigger. They all conspired in this criminal enterprise. What are they trying to do? Well, logically, the bookie didn't commit the murder, right? But the bookie's scared to death. So what they're going to do, prosecutor, not to use pronouns, the prosecutor is going to get the bookie to provide information on the drug runner. And the drug runner is going to provide information on the pimp. And the pimp's going to provide information on the hitman. And then everybody in the circle could face a prosecution. Precisely, they all conspire to commit this criminal enterprise. And that's why conspiracy doesn't really merge. There's times you can make plea agreements and sentence agreements to the contrary of that. But on the black and white law, conspiracy is a standalone crime. It's incohate, but it's standalone. And it stand alone because prosecutors want to get the bigger fish. The only way they could truly get the bigger fish was to garner testimony from the smaller fish. Hence, we have Conspiracy, Rico, and the Pinkerton Rule. Alright, so solicitation, first pitch of the game. Attempt, the failed crime. Conspiracy, preparation for the crime, but not actually doing the crime itself. There are the three big ones. There's aiding and abetting, there's accessory after the fact, there's many others, but they're your big three. From a law school genre, from Michigan bar exam genre, from the MBE, the multi-state bar exam aspect of things, they get tested heavily. 
and in the real world, those three inchoate crimes are the ones we see most frequently. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. We are live. It is weird, right? Man. DHHS drama in Lenaway. Hmm. So we were not prosecuting a case, right? That was interesting. One of my favorite courts, but just feels like it's the opposite day. I know I got some friends out there that are going through some serious stuff right now, and I'm hoping to bring a little light-hearted humor to you tonight. Talk about this volleyball tournament when I was a teenager. Let's kick it back to New Jersey in the '90s, and I'm a kid. And one of the things we would do when I got my first car, I drove before I had a driver's license. So Scott Gravel, you can now report me to Ventnor for not only lying about my address, for driving driving illegally in Jersey. And I got my money together. I get this old beat up Camaro. And that Camaro was my way out of the ghetto when it ran. And one of the places you would go to was Brigantine. Brigantine is where volleyball tourneys lived in South Jersey back then. And people would come from all over to go to Brigantine. I never liked Brigantine, per se. Um, I used to say there was one way in and one way out of Brigantine. You had to go over that big bridge. Fun fact about Brigantine, the second windiest city in the country next to Chicago. And Brigantine was just a weird place. And Brigantine had these crazy cliques. And Brigantine was really like, there was a rich part of Brigantine, and there was a really dirt poor part of Brigantine. And at AC High, the Atlantic City and Brigantine kids went one way, Ventnor Market kids went the other way. The kids that were the brains in Brigantine, the Jeff Goldmans, the Sean Daly's, they had such a chip on their shoulder, they thought they were better than you, which, whatever, that's a story for another time. But Brigantine, to me, I used to escape there to go play volleyball. And it was weird. Despite being short, always been short, I was a pretty good beach volleyball player. And I was never a good leaper at basketball, but for whatever reason on sand, I could get up pretty high. It was very weird how that worked out. And there's this big tournament coming up. We had to pay X amount of dollars to be in this tournament, and the best of the best were going to be there. And it was kind of a foregone conclusion who was going to win this tournament. There were these two giant guys. It's just called them Mike and Joe. Mike and Joe were the California blonde-looking dudes, right? 6'4", 6'5", twin towers. And they were going to dominate the volleyball scene. They came in. These are the guys that didn't work, smoked weed, drank beer, Hooked up with hot South Jersey girls. Their life was volleyball. And they had a chance to go pro. And I'm going to tell you, this day literally destroyed one of their pro careers. And I played a role in that. (laughs) So, what I would do, and let's back it up. 
volleyball in Brigantine was kind of sacred, right? And there were tournaments all the time, but there were these volleyball courts that were open 24 hours a day. So you could get a game at midnight sometimes. What I used to do after working my little job was I would drive to Brigantine. And didn't have much money back then. You guys know the baseball card drama. But I would have... <laughs> Thank you, Mike. I would have... Um, by the way, Mike, that check was mailed today. So Schwartz Squeak Little League. Great calls. We should all get behind that. I would have a bunch of volleyballs, right? What I would do, I saved up for these volleyballs, is I would just practice my serves late at night. I'd go there. And one night, these two stars were with their hot girlfriends. And I'm sitting there alone at 16, 17 years old, working on my serve. Now, as you can imagine, the five, six kid from the hood coming to Brigantine to work on a serve at midnight after working a minimum wage job, I was the butt of some jokes. And as you also know, sometimes jokes don't go over well with me, and sometimes they do. It depends who's delivering them, right? So this one asshole, he's laughing at me about my serves. He goes, oh, ho, ho. is that going to help you get taller? And his girlfriend is laughing, and they're giggling as they're stumbling on the Brigantine Beach. And, and I'm thinking to myself, one day, asshole, one day, I'm be better than you in every way. But it wasn't going to be tonight. And I keep practicing and practicing and practicing. So, you know, and I'll say, these two guys were amazing. They were amazing volleyball players. Credit where credit's due. And when they would spike, man, it came down you hard. Like, if you were digging and a dig is, like, banging it out when somebody hits a, serve, hits a spike on you, it would bang your arms hard. Like, there'd be a dent on the ball. And this big tourney's coming up. I'm not good enough to play in this tourney. I was a hardworking volleyball player. And the guy that was my partner, he was working. And, you know, I was literally going to go to this tournament and watch. That's what I was going to do. And there's this older guy, 23, seemed older now. Now it would be a kid today. And his partner backed down. He paid the admission fee. And he saw me play late at night. And he goes, hey, I know you play a lot. Do you want to be my partner today? And I got to tell you, there's something about this. Sometimes just being thrown into the moment works. Just sometimes it does. Now, ways to think about that. If I had been prepping all week for that tournament, I may not have been on my game. But here I am. To me, there was no pressure at all. I'm the smallest guy. That's right, Josh, the Karch Karai Jumpster, which I tried unsuccessfully, but I tried that for years. I'm the small guy on the court, and this guy asked me to play with him. Oh, yeah, what the hell? Now, there were like 64 teams, and they went from 1 to 64, just assuming everybody would win and then the tourney would flip and it was like March Madness in a way and we're the last seed and those two blonde guys are the first seed and they're laughing as they're warming up 
and I'm thinking to myself, shit, part of me is like, this is my chance to stick it up their ass. Another part of me is like, oh, well, if I lose, I'm supposed to lose. So I'm warming up with my partner, and I see one of the blonde guy's girlfriend. She had long red hair, and she's sitting on the beach reading the Executioner's Song. Now, at this point in my life, I'm 17, 16, 17. She's like 22, so you think like she's like the hot older girl, right? That's what you're thinking at this point. And I see her reading this book, and it's a book I had intimate knowledge of. And I want to get to this asshole's head. He's mocking me on the beach. He thinks he's God's gift to the world. And I go up to her and I said, hey, executioner's song, huh? Let's do it. And I wink. And she said, what? So you know what Gary Gilmore said before he got shot at the firing squad? Let's do it. Nike stole that. And she says to me, you know who Gary Gilmore is? Let me back it up. She was a history major from a college. Gary Gilmore was the guy that brought the death penalty back to America. And I read book after book about Gary Gilmore. The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer was the quintessential book on Gary Gilmore. And I'm going up to this older chick and I'm telling her I know about this book. And I'm making these jokes, Gibbs and Gilmore, that was about the undercover agent trying to get information on Gary Gilmore. And she is fascinated. We're talking about Ben Bushnell and Max Jensen, the two guys that Gary Gilmore killed to get to the firing squad. And California boy is watching me and her go at it. And he says to her, you told this little bitch? And I said to him, I don't know. Maybe I know more about Norman Mailer's books than you do, huh, big guy? And he's pissed. And he's losing it. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't beat this guy one-on-one. I can't. He's 6'5", I'm 5'6". He's got to serve to hurt. He's got to spike to cause injuries. But I'm going to connect with his girlfriend about this piece of literature and mess with his head. And mess with his head I did. At this tournament, it was best of five. So it was a race to three, as they called it in Brigantine. And this guy, she's looking at me and reading her book, and he is off his game. And this was something I learned about life. Getting inside people's heads can lead to advantageous things. It's like calling an opposing counsel extremely unattractive or stupid when they really are, and making them realize they are. So I get into this person's head. His spike is off. He's serving the ball out of balance. We're beating him. We take him out. He's done. And he was never the same again. You tracked him, and he simply never made it to the pros. And that tournament was his downfall. And I think to myself, if the asshole would have just let me hit my balls in the dark and brigantine instead of making a joke, maybe he would have had a professional career. Because that day, he lost the girl, he lost the tournament, everything was falling apart for him because he had to mock me when I was playing volleyball by myself. So, dude, if you're out there, you could blame me for that. I didn't start this shit. Anyway, 
they're fighting the whole time, and it became like this very bizarre thing, because the other teams are watching. Now guys are thinking this girl's available, they're literally having this screaming match, and everybody was thrown off. And me and my partner, we just kept surviving and advancing, as you would put it. We won the next round, and the next round, the next round. Finally, we get to the finals. And we're playing this other team from Florida. And this team is bigger, stronger, and faster. But me and my friend are here. I'm like, you know what? We weren't even supposed to be here today. Let's just go out there and do this shit. And I want the lesson from this is sometimes in life, just because on paper somebody looks more powerful than you doesn't mean shit. We went out there, and it was a race to three again. And we won three games to two. And it was historic by South Jersey volleyball standards then. This 5'6 teenager and this 23-year-old guy with no experience went in there and beat the best of the best in this tournament. And it all started because some asshole was mocking me in the middle of the night. His girlfriend had a knack to read Norman Mailer books. And I knew enough about Gary Gilmore to basically stick it up their ass. So, another thing that happened that always stuck with me was there's this band called Stroke Nine. And Stroke Nine was not known at this point. They were young kids, but in Brigantine, for whatever reason, they used to blast their CDs. And there's this amazing song by Stroke Nine that I'll post later, but it's kind of stuck with me the rest of my life. It's I've always been fond of Stroke 9 and the song Vacuum Bag. Even though Vacuum Bag wasn't playing that day, it's kind of like connected me in so many different things, but I think of Stroke 9, I think back to being this poor kid from the hood, and all I wanted to do was hit my serves and be left alone. And the motivation to win this tournament I had no right to even be in and to get in this guy's head is because somebody wouldn't leave me alone. And I take that as a motto for life. I always like breaking into the cir circles I'm not supposed to be in. You know, it's become like a metaphor to what we have been the whole story, right? Sometimes, remember now that I've advanced to whatever the hell I am, that kid that's playing volleyball at 1 o'clock in the morning, meaning the lawyer that's on his court-appointed case, I'm not going to mock him or her. I want to get him a Gatorade. Wish him well. Because at the end of the day, we're supposed to be a team. But when somebody who has the image of something superior to you kicks dirt in your face... The revenge is really sweet. And because he messed with me when I was just trying to be left alone, I systematically destroyed his future. I'm proud of that. Anyway, that was Memorial Day Volleyball Tournament Brigantine in the early 90s. <laughs> the Jail Visit with Attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311.
This is The Jail Visit on Shiawasi Radio. We're going to talk about... What was the topic again? Yeah. Old friends in different places. Alright, this will be like a throwback. Now, this is not the Request It Live, Emily Thomas. Wait for that one. It's coming. Tonight, we're just... Talk about some things from the past. Gotta get more content done. And, um, yeah. You want more content done, right? Yeah, he's been... The live audience has been demanding live content. One day, we're gonna do a live about you. You won't be liking that, will you? The live audience is absolutely amazing. And I swear... You know, Matt McMass and I were talking today about a crazy case. And, um... I gotta tell you. How did we become the voices of sanity? I think... If the Pope had my cell number right now, he would try to give me shit. I'm amazed. Utterly amazed. Like, people you're cool with, people you care about, are, like, losing their mind in text messages right now. And I'm sitting there like, huh. Okay. And I'm trying to bring it back down to earth. And then I, you know, you're tired and you get into the banter. And that's what tonight's all about, the banter. So let me, before we get into this, because they're actually, one's a really sad tale and one is a really cool tale. And last night, when Aaron Abera posted that song by Bailey Zimmerman, Aaron, if you're out there watching, that got me thinking about this blog tonight. Because I have two friends, and we have similar attributes, right? These two friends I'm talking about tonight. And we were both from the same geographic area. And... The thing about life and the thing about love is you don't know what's going on inside somebody's mind. And there's two songs that just hit really hard right now. That Bailey Zimmerman song really made me think about two of my old friends. And there's a song called Let Me Go by Three Doors Down. I'll post a video later. If you have not heard Let Me Go by Three Doors Down, it's a powerful song. But the video to me was even more powerful. Let me tell you about it. And I said, we will post, but... It's like 2005. I'm in like my third or fourth term of law school, and I went out and I bought the CD, because she had CDs in the car back then. And this song just stood out from the crowd. And the video was even deeper. Because the video's about this girl, and she's got this high school crush. And they are into each other, and they're happy. But he doesn't know her whole story. And that's the thing. How many people really know the whole story? And how many people want to know the whole story? That's a fascinating dynamic. But she's this pretty girl, he's this good-looking guy, and they are in high school love. And one night she pulls up to the strip club, because she's a stripper. And he sees her there, and he goes, what are you doing? And, like, the bouncer outside pushes him away, and she goes in and she strips. And she goes back to school the next day. And she sees him, and he's, like, trashed her reputation. He's belittled her. And she's totally devastated and broken heart that he's lost interest in her because he saw her strip. And at the end of the video, you see her give this woman money, and you see that she has a baby. And it's very clear at this point she was stripping to support her child. She was a teenage mother. And this kid from the suburbs never put two and two together. And not only did he diss her, 
he destroyed her reputation in school. And that's the fascinating thing to me. I'm sitting there and I felt bad for this girl in this video. You're connected to this song. You don't know what somebody else has been through. And he was judging her for stripping at this club. She was trying to feed her child. She probably didn't have the emotional support and sort of the financial support that he had. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's been on both ends of that spectrum now, from the inner city to the suburbs, it just fascinates me how we miss the whole picture. We miss things about people. If he didn't want to be with her anymore, did he have to like belittle her to the whole school? And at the end of the day, he's going to have his good life because he's got financial security and she's going to be struggling. She's going to have dreams about him at the end of the day. And then I see a guy like that in court. I just want to rip his throat out. So I feel like I'm defending her. It's just weird. You know, I hate how the suburbanites don't understand what the people in the inner city have been through. And as somebody who's been in that inner city, God, it's just fascinating. And that song always, it broke things down for me so much. Because now, at this point in my life, I'm in my fourth term, third or fourth term, and you knew now, active probation was over. You knew that as long as you kept working, you were able to sit for the bar exam. And I felt like I escaped. And you start looking at people differently. You start looking at people very differently. Because now, like, a lot of the girls and stuff that were from the suburbs look at you differently. You have a house in the suburbs back home in Jersey. And you're doing well in law school. And you got all this shit together. But you're still that same inner city kid. But you don't show that side to them. You don't show yourself to them. And that is really what today is about. Showing yourself. You know, showing yourself, man vulnerable as hell it's dangerous and where we're from and the two people I want to talk about today being vulnerable it's terrifying so he puts a gun in your head we'll deal with it somebody stabs you fight back but to actually let your guard down that's terrifying not the gun not the knife but the actual emotional vulnerability scary stuff and I thought to myself, wow, everybody's really looking for these people that they can connect with. This is how cults are built. This is how gangs are formed. You just want to belong. And the two people I want to talk about today, one who's no longer with us and one who's doing okay, we came from the same difficulties. We came from a background that was dangerous. And we had to have like this hardness about us to survive that time period. The first guy, he was talented, really good at art. And I gotta tell you, a guy who's good at art living in the ghetto is not always accepted. And there were questions about his sexuality. And I gotta tell you, the 90s in Ducktown and the surrounding areas, if you were a gay male, that was something you hid. And I think he liked men and women 
because we'll get into a story about the squirrel, but he was lonely. Always lonely. And him and I had a different outlook on things. We had different families, right? We were both poor, but he lived a few blocks away from me. And um, his neighborhood, not good, but better than our neighborhood. And sometimes we used to walk home together until he got to his point. I had to go a few more blocks. And this kid was an absolute computer genius. He could write code. He could have made millions and millions of dollars. And he was a geek his whole life. Was an athlete. Had this edge about him, which we had to have. He wasn't tough. He didn't fit into the suburban clique. He didn't fit into the jock clique. He didn't fit into any clique. And he was somewhat of a loner. And about 18, he found a clique. And it wasn't good. He started working in the casino. He started using drugs. And he lost himself. And that one unique talent he had, well, two unique talents, the art and his computer coding, it went to the wayside. And he really got involved with drugs heavily. We worked at Tropicana together for a minute. I was a bar porter. He was a busboy. And when I would see him in the cafeteria, it was just weird. Because he was always high. Eventually, he took a job at Boscov's, where I worked as a kid, I would see him there, and we would talk. And the Alki brought us together. The Alki was this amazing place, right? That's where I learned to box. It was survival in Ducktown. It was a place of safety. And him and I would hang out in the Alki. I was in college at this point. He was working at Boscov's. We would just shoot pool and talk about life. And, you know, we weren't really friends. But we had a bond. The bond was we were two of the only white kids from our neighborhood. And we both made it through that. We were going different directions. I was going the route of education, and he was just going the labor route. And he found this wild group he did drugs with. Then he turned it around. He just turned it around. And I said to him one night, the Alki, we're sitting there watching a game. And I said, you know, you're such a talented guy with a computer. Why don't you push that? And I always have some guilt about this. I told him to push the computer and push the art thing. Because this kid has talent in both. And I said to him, and this was a mistake, I guess, but it was in good intentions. You know, they may not give a shit about your art here. But in a place like New York, maybe they would. So I put that idea in his head. And he's like, you know, maybe I'll go to New York. Go for it, dude. Get away from this bullshit. You don't need these people. They're not real friends anyway. And if art's where your heart is, and computer's where your heart is, you know, there's going to be pockets of people in New York that are just going to accept you. Now, I was never that cultured, you know? To me, my way out was just flat-out education and work ethic. I didn't have the talent like he did in these areas. But I encouraged him to just go for it. And he did. 
And I saw him when I the Alki, and um, he was in a suit and tie, and he had a big meeting with a computer company out in New York, and he was doing stuff with his art, and I was happy because I felt like you know, I played a role in that. And that's how I was doing. I'm like, well, I'm trying to take this L set, and I'm doing well in school, and I'm working full time in the casino, and I'm really proud. I just got Aunt Mary on this house in Ventnor, but we kind of bonded there for a minute, you know. And I was so happy for him because here he is. He seemed happy. The computer talents, the art which was a passion. He met people he liked in New York. He turned the corner. And part was like, you know, one day I'm going to turn that corner like that. I'm going to do it differently. But good for him. This pound, you know. The thing is this. We all got these needs inside, right? Got these internal things, these things that make us tick. We connect with people. And it doesn't make sense at times, right? We connect with people who may not seem like they're the people we should be connected with in the real world. But I think at the end of the day, what this guy wanted, he just wanted to find love. And he meant this girl in New York. And this is where a little bit of a guilt trip comes in. Now, this girl was extremely religious. And he explained that to me one day when he was talking about her. He like, and he wasn't religious, you know? But he was like, no, she's really religious, but I'm going to become religious for her. And you know, guys, I think religion is a good thing that works for you. But when you start changing yourself for somebody else, you lose yourself in their identity. And I was concerned about that. But he told me how he was in love with her, and she's the one. And, you know, he really wasn't that successful woman before her. She was a real pretty girl, and they connected on some levels, and I'm like, cool. The thing about this real religious girl, which was a contradiction, what she liked to play with cocaine. She would be praising Jesus in one breath and rolling up a line in another. And I knew he was involved in the drug scene. He kind of turned the corner on that. And let me tell you something about the drug scene back home. Nobody ever used drugs in front of me. In my cliques. It just didn't happen. They knew I was just not about that. But they did stuff behind their back and you know I always was told that people try to put their best foot forward with me Bill doesn't drink like that Bill doesn't drink at all Bill doesn't use drugs I don't want to do it in front of Bill but they weren't really being themselves I mean if he wanted to use drugs I'm not one to judge other than hey here's the dangers I'm not trying to call it like a holy roller but he gets involved with her and as he's trying to find religion with her he starts using drugs with her and at this point, the fear is he's wrapped himself in her identity. But he needs to be in New York to be who he is. So he's going back and forth between New York and Atlantic City. And we lose track with each other. We go our different ways, right? And I don't know what's happened to him. This wasn't like the texting era. We didn't really call each other much. It's rooting for him. And one day, I come home from law school, 
and I park in the back of the Alki. Q and I go to the Alki like old times to hit the bag a little bit. And um, we go to the back door because you parked in the back and you went in the back door of the Alki. And there's this body laying in front of the back door of the Alki. And I look down like, holy shit, it's my friend. What are you doing, dude? He's got like needle marks up and down his arm and he's sleeping on the ground. And I'm just in shock and I'm like, come on, dude, let's get you up. Let's go inside. Let's get you some food. Let's just talk. And we're talking about life. We haven't seen each other in a few years. And um, he said, what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm in law school. It's my fourth term. I'm back from term break. So what happened with the art? What happened with the computer? And he was still trying to do these things. But he tells about this girl. And they've been off and on for years. And he's using the drugs with her. And he's working odd jobs. And he's taking money to go buses back and forth to New York and he said something really powerful to me it will stick with me forever I said you're too good for this shit you need to find what you love to go for it it's not the computer stuff it's not your art I don't know but you are a talented individual you're too good to be laying with track marks on Mississippi Avenue crying over this woman. It's bullshit. You're better than this. Let me help you. And he said to me, this was the last time we ever spoke, you love law school. That's what you love. You love the idea of getting the hell out of here. You love the idea of proving people wrong. These are the things you love. And I respect you for that, babe. I really do. He goes, and I'm sure, long after I'm gone, and it's almost like he knew he was going to die soon, you're going to do really big things. Just that you're never going to understand what I'm dealing with right now. And I want to learn. I said, what are you dealing with? You love law school and your image. I love her. And it's the first time I've ever felt anything like that. I don't want that feeling go. And I'm like, bro, she's not worth this shit. And he's breaking down. Here's this tough kid, quasi-tough at least, crying his eyes out. in the living room of the Alki, track marks up and down his arms, and tell me how he has to get her back. And I just sat there with Q, and we looked at him, and we don't know, this is a bit of our pay grade at this point, right? What do you tell somebody in this situation? You're better than her, you don't need this shit. You shouldn't use drugs. You're a talented guy. You're an attractive guy. I mean, is there any magic words? Is there any magic formula right now? Gave him some money. Gave him a ride. 
a couple turns later, I heard he was dead. Overdosed. Part of me was confused over this for a while. I told him to go to New York to chase his dreams. And he was miserable back home, you know? Just miserable back home. He was going back and forth between New York and Atlantic City. But he was not happy where we were. None of us were, right? But sometimes I think to myself, you know, you should just keep your mouth shut. Who the hell are you to tell him to make a move like that? It was all the best of intentions. But I wonder if he didn't go to New York and he didn't meet her. He didn't become so enthralled with her and he wrapped himself to her world. Maybe he'd be alive today. Maybe miserable in Atlantic City, working in a casino against his will. Tell him to go for it. And I think in life, people don't gamble on themselves enough. And I gotta tell you, at that point in my life, gambling myself was the only option. Before I went off to law school, I wanted to make sure Aunt Mary and Mom had enough money to support themselves, come close to paying off the mortgage. I didn't go to law school right away because I was working so hard to make sure they were financially supported. Once I felt there was enough financial support for those two, I had to go. And my greatest fear was if I didn't take a shot on that, I was going to hate myself. But in a lot of ways, as selfless as I am, and I'm a pretty selfless person, I was selfish about my goals. Very selfish. What makes you tick? And I think back to another close friend who came from a very similar situation as a year or two older than us. And I watched this guy with such admiration because as bad as my neighborhood was, he lived several blocks down, several blocks north, and his neighborhood was worse. I mean, when I tell you they were poor, like we were poor, we looked like friggin' Bill Gates' family compared to them. Food was always in question. Soap, deodorant, was the shower going to work? in the projects they were in. And he didn't have the love in the house that I did. And he's somewhat successful today. And he's somebody who I still call a good friend. But he ended up in a really bad marriage. Because he found someone who he just clicked with. And the person he clicked with was just a bad person. I mean, look, man. I'm not a relationship counselor, okay? I'm just not. And... I think Stevie Wonder could have saw how dangerous this woman was. There was red flags upon red flags. But for the first time in his life, he was told it's okay, and he was just accepted for being himself. And what she did was she controlled this poor bastard. Eventually they got divorced. We found somebody who's much better, but we talk a lot on the phone and when her name comes up He goes, you know, I don't get it. I don't understand I could end up with her and I do It was an emotional escape the turmoil 
that we felt growing up. There weren't a lot of us, you know? There just weren't a lot of us. A lot of white kids from the hood. It just wasn't an abundance. So even if we weren't friends, we had some kind of connection. A high and by, or your closest friend in the world. They span from those two spectrums. And I look at my friend who overdosed. I look at my friend who ended up in this bad marriage. And I look at me. And I think both of those guys temporarily were much happier than myself. But I had this feeling, this feeling of completeness, this feeling of getting in that car and going to Michigan and rolling the dice on everything. It just made sense to me. And I wonder if I would have ended up with the people that I cared about back then, how that would have altered the game. I was gone, man. It was time to go. And I look at these two individuals who, in my opinion, far more talented than me on so many levels. We all got these needs. We got these needs to be loved and these needs to be accepted and these needs to just fit in. And I think at some point in my life, those needs became secondary or non-existent. And with these guys, while they may have forgotten about those needs, it was like breathed back into them. And they completely embraced themselves into this other individual. Let me tell you something, guys. And I mean this with all due respect to everybody watching. You may have the best relationship in the world. Best husband in the world, best wife in the world, whatever. If you lose your identity in somebody else... When that other person becomes your entirety, you are setting yourself up for failure and emotional turmoil. When you lose sight of that thing that breathes that fire into you, bad stuff's gonna happen. It just is. I wish my friend who's gone and overdosed would have really just focused on his art and his computer coding but they have different personalities and you know life everybody could hit the fastball if it's straight no matter how fast it comes at you what makes you different is when you could hit that breaking ball 100 mile an hour fastball with no movement can still be hit. It's the junk pitches in life that throws stuff off. And when you strike out because you can't hit that curveball, the key to success is getting back up, adjusting the bat, choking up and going to the opposite field. Modify your game for you, not for anybody else. So. I guess that's all I got to say right now. Have a good night, guys.
The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed.